Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Karthik Hosanagar, the author of A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. This is one of those rare books that I think everyone can read, and I also think everyone should read. In fact, knowledge of algorithms can in some sense be considered to be the literacy of the 21st century. If you want to become literate, you should read this instructive and immensely enjoyable book. Karthik, welcome to the show. Jim, thanks for having me. Karthik, what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, so I'm a professor of technology and digital business at the Wharton School. I study uh, technology and its impact on society and business, uh, and I spend a lot of time uh, writing code myself. Um, and while my subject uh, gets a lot of attention in the popular press, uh, I feel like the public uh, lacks the right mental models to understand how uh, algorithms and uh, artificial intelligence work and uh, how they impact us. So sometimes I feel that the conversation is a bit uh, fear-oriented at the expense of being more solution-oriented. And so this book is my attempt uh, to try and address that. Um, and in fact, I would say the specific germ of this uh, idea or the book actually began in my research lab. Uh, I was conducting a study uh, on um, a subject that I thought will mostly confirm these accepted notions at the time that the internet democratizes uh, taste and uh, our choice. Um, and we looked at the impact of personalization algorithms, uh, for example, the algorithms that recommend products to you on Amazon or recommend movies to you on Netflix or media to you on you know, Google News and elsewhere. Uh, we looked at the impact of these algorithms on choices people make. And we found that sometimes they actually do the opposite, that they could uh, essentially send us down echo chambers or uh, they could um, also, instead of uh, helping niche products get discovered, they might make popular products more popular. And so that led me to start working on how do you design systems to achieve better social goals and business targets. And that started off the stream of work, uh, which has expanded over time and uh, which eventually led to this book. You know, I was absolutely fascinated by the story of Yuan, Shao Ice, and Tay with which you began the book. And I'm sure the listeners will be too. Yeah, so it's uh, really interesting. Um, and the story really begins with uh, Microsoft Research launching a chatbot, which is essentially uh, artificial intelligence that can chat with people, understands languages, and can converse. Uh, so they launched a chatbot in China known as Shawais. And Shawais was immensely popular in, in China with over 40 million followers, 40 million people who have interacted with Shawais. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the story goes that nearly uh, a quarter of these Followers have said, I love you to Shawai. So such is the level of uh, deep personal interaction that people have had with Shawai. And Shawai has been created in the avatar of a teenage girl, and she engages in fun, playful conversations with people. It was so immensely successful in China that Microsoft decided to launch a similar chatbot in the U.S. And they launched it on Twitter, and it was called Microsoft Tay. And Tay ended up being uh, a racist, sexist, fascist chatbot that said all kinds of uh, highly offensive things, things that, you know, I would uh, almost feel shy to repeat here on the show, but uh, really offensive things that are memori memorialized on the Internet uh, on various websites. Uh, but it said such offensive things that Microsoft had to shut down Microsoft Tay within 24 hours of launching it. And that led me to wonder how could, you know, the same company, Microsoft, using very similar approaches, end up in such highly different outcomes. And so it really begins this uh, conversation on, you know, you know, why is AI uh, or artificial intelligence so unpredictable? And how can a company launching an AI-based system uh, you know, the same company end up with very different outcomes. And so my book also tries to explore what I call the behavior of uh, AI systems or algorithms in general. 
Yeah. In fact, what are algorithms, artificial intelligence, and machine learning? How do they impact our lives now, and how do we believe they will impact our lives in the future? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people find these uh, terms like algorithms, AI, machine learning uh, kind of confusing. Um, and I'm going to say that, in fact, they sound complex, uh, but they aren't. Um, in fact, algorithms are simply a series of steps one follows to get something done. So, for example, I follow a set of steps uh, in making my omelet. Uh, I'm not much of a cook, but, you know, an omelet, I can make it well. And I have a series of steps I just follow almost religiously uh, for my uh, omelet. Now, you might call it my omelet recipe, but the computer scientist in me calls it my omelet algorithm because that's what an algorithm is. It's a recipe or a series of steps one follows to get something done. Now, it used to be the case that algorithms were written by human programmers. We specified the series of steps that a computer program must follow to get something done. But increasingly, what we're starting to realize is that, you know, we can't really build very sophisticated systems if we have to program every step in there. Uh, for example, if we want to create uh, an algorithm that can recognize faces or an algorithm in a driverless car that can determine what's actually in front of us, you know, it's very hard to write all of the rules that are relevant in order to identify faces. In fact, you know, I can recognize my mother's face, all of us can, in, an, uh, in a photograph where there might be 100 other people in there. But can we specify the rules that somebody else can use to recognize our mother? Probably not. And so where algorithm design has gone more recently is that instead of trying to specify all the rules, we give uh, these systems lots of data where we say, this is the photo of my mom, this is the photo of my dad, this is the photo of my cousin, this is the photo of you know these other famous people and so on. And now we give it data and we say, learn on your own. And that's essentially the domain of machine learning, which is use data, which has clearly uh, inputted labels, and then asking the system to learn from that. And much like a child learns initially by making mistakes, but as a child sees more and more data, we start to become better in recognizing the difference between a human and an animal and a dog and a cat and a cat and a tiger. These machine learning systems get better as they get more data. And machine learning is a subfield of a broader field known as artificial intelligence or, or AI. And AI is essentially all the things uh, that it takes to create intelligence. So that includes things like, you know, natural language understanding, the ability to recognize uh, our visual world and to be able to manipulate objects uh, and so on. And artificial include, intelligence includes many fields, but arguably the most important within it is the ability to learn, and that is machine learning. What was the flash crash, and how has it impacted the algorithm creation industry? Yeah, so the flash crash was an uh, uh, interesting event that happened uh, in Wall Street in 2010. And in, in fact, on May 6th, uh, 2010, the stock market uh, had a very massive crash in which nearly $1 trillion of market value was wiped out in just 34 minutes. And there were some blue chip uh, stocks that were trading for as little as a penny. And everyone was shocked that this kind of a crash could happen. And a lot of analysis has been done uh, on why such a crash happened. It turns out that a lot of it had to do with uh, algorithmic trading. So, you know, you and I buy stocks uh, online, uh, but really individuals buying stocks online is a very small portion of uh, stock trading. A lot of trading is happening with trading algorithms, buying and selling uh, stocks on the in the market. And uh, in this event, uh, it turns out uh, it was contributed in part by uh, one algorithm deciding to sell large amounts of a uh, 
uh, a trading instrument known as an eMuni. And when it did that, a bunch of other trading algorithms started uh, selling as well. And this created almost uh, uh, a frenzy where these trading algorithms started selling a lot of the holdings that they had and that caused the market to crash uh, in this case the most extreme stock sales were later cancelled and the market recovered but it shows you how when algorithms are making decisions for us uh, sometimes it's hard for the human programmer to predict everything that can happen because these are complex systems where algorithms interact with one another and with humans um, and you know anything can happen and, and my book tries to cover some of these risks when algorithms make important decisions for us. Um, in conjunction with that, do you feel that algorithms that are used today amplify or restrict free will? Yeah, so that's a very interesting uh, theme. Um, and in fact, one of the early chapters in, in the book. Uh, and if you look at the choices we make today, you know, algorithms are a big part of many of those choices. So, for example, you know, when we go to Amazon and we buy products, there are algorithms saying people who bought this book also bought these other books. Or on Netflix, again, algorithms are recommending to us the media we should watch. Um, and similarly, if you go to uh, Google News, there are algorithms recommending news stories to us. Uh, you know, if you look at millennials, post millennials, a lot of their dating decisions are made on, you know, apps like Tinder, where again, algorithms are recommending, here's the person you should uh, be dating. And in, in our imaginings, often we think the algorithms are uh, making recommendations and we make the final decision on what is it that we actually want. And then we essentially just nod politely and we make the decisions we want to. But all the data suggests otherwise. Um, in fact, 80% uh, of the media views on Netflix originate from automated recommendations. Nearly 35% of sales uh, on Amazon's website originate from automated recommendations. And the vast majority of matches on dating apps like Tinder are initiated by algorithms. So clearly, we don't have the free will that we think we do. We are constantly being nudged by algorithms. And we don't often realize how our choices are determined in a large part by algorithms. You know, in addition uh, to Tay, in your book, you mentioned that algorithms can be biased and can have unintended consequences. What are some examples of counterproductive unintended consequences? Yeah, so I think there are many examples of um, algorithms that uh, can have unintended consequences. I'll mention a couple. Uh, so one of them comes from algorithms that are used in uh, courts in the U.S. Uh, to help judges make sentencing decisions. And uh, earlier last year, there was an article uh, or an analysis by ProPublica that showed that some of these algorithms had a race bias, a race bias and uh, for very similar uh, offenses, it tended to uh, suggest that the likelihood that an African-American defendant would uh, commit a crime again was a lot higher than, um, uh, say, a white person. And their analysis, and it was a very systematic, detailed, careful analysis, showed that the algorithm did have a bias against African-Americans. Another example is in recruiting algorithms. So recruiting algorithms are being used to screen resumes of job applicants. And as you can imagine, in large corporations like, let's say, Amazon, you might be getting hundreds of thousands of job applications every year. And it's not possible for a human being to carefully analyze that many resumes and figure out who's a good fit. So oftentimes you want to use algorithms to uh, essentially filter down the applications into a smaller set of interesting ones. And there was a new story, again, late last year uh, by Reuters about uh, Amazon using these resume screening algorithms and as part of a research study to see if they can roll it out. And it turns out that, uh, you know, whatever they tried, they couldn't get rid of a gender bias that these algorithms had. And uh, eventually they decided to shelve it and they decided not to roll out the algorithm. So in this instance, 
Amazon was careful, it was sophisticated enough to detect these biases, but there might be many other companies that do resume screening using these algorithms that, that, may, that might have all kinds of biases against women, minorities, and so on. And recollect that these systems use past data to learn how to make decisions. So if human beings are biased and human beings uh, make decisions based on those biases, these machine learning algorithms are learning how to make decisions from that past data. And so they pick up the biases. And in fact, they almost institutionalize the bias going forward when they start to make decisions. You know, that sounds like a real problem. How concerned should we be that algorithms and AI can be biased? Yeah, so for me, the biggest cause of concern is not that algorithms have biases, because I think there's ample evidence that algorithms on average are less biased than human beings. However, I think we are more susceptible to biases in algorithms than in humans, and that should be the cause for concern. So when I say we're more susceptible to biases in algorithms, the the two reasons why I feel that way. The first is that many people still think of algorithms as rational, infallible machines. And thus they fail to address and curb, you know, what I might call biases or bad behavior on the part of algorithms. And so one has to look at algorithms with, you know, a level of, um, I, I wouldn't say cynicism, but certainly with a level of care in order to make sure that these algorithms are not biased. The other aspect um, that is a problem with algorithmic biases is that human biases do not touch as many lives or do not scale the way that software might. So if you imagine a bad judge in a court, they might affect the lives of a few hundred, maybe even a few thousand people. But a sentencing algorithm that's rolled out in all the courts in the U.S., that can affect millions of lives. Similarly, if you have a recruiting algorithm, that can touch you know, hundreds of millions of lives. So software scales in a manner that human decisions don't. And I think that's why we need to be careful about biases in algorithms. I think that's an extremely good point. You know, in your book, you mentioned two kinds of personalization algorithms, content-based recommendation and collaborative filtering. How do they differ? Yeah, so we are all, you know, as we discussed earlier, affected by algorithms. They're affecting our choices. When we go to Amazon, we see personalized recommendations. People who bought this also bought that. On Netflix, we see recommendations based on our past choices. On Pandora, we see music recommendations. Now, not all of them use the same approach. And at a high level, I would say that there are two kinds of designs for personalization algorithms. The first is what is known as collaborative filtering. And the idea of collaborative filtering is if you asked me, Jim, to recommend um you know, a movie for you or a song for you, then one way I could do that is to see what you've liked so far. And maybe you'll tell me, you know, four or five movies you've liked. And maybe I know nothing about movies, but I can go ask other people and find who else likes the same movies as Jim. And then I could ask them, what else do they like? And that's my recommendation for you. That is essentially Amazon's people who bought this also bought these other products or people who viewed this product also viewed these products. So that is essentially the idea of using the choices of others to make recommendations. Amazon uses it, Netflix uses it. The alternative is that the algorithm becomes a real expert in what it is recommending. So if you say that you like Back to the Future, Star Trek, uh, and a few other movies, then I look at those movies and I figure out what is it that makes these movies similar? And then I figure out, okay, you know, maybe Jim likes movies from the 70s and 80s, and he likes movies that have adventure in them, and maybe a little bit of uh, science fiction in them. And so that's based on an actual analysis of the content that is being recommended. And that design is known as a content-based recommender. And that's the approach that is used by Pandora, where, you know, essentially Pandora, Pandora is a huge database where every song 
they have labeled it and they've identified various attributes of the song, like how rhythmic is the song um, and uh, things like that, which allows Pandora's algorithms to understand the songs. And then when you inform Pandora that you like certain music, it figures out what are the underlying musical attributes that you like. Like, for example, Jim likes rhythmic music uh, or Jim likes music with a lot of instrumentation. And then it recommends other songs. And in fact, Pandora came out of a project known as the Human Genome Project, where they had artists listen to songs and essentially score every song on a bunch of attributes, uh, almost like the genes of the music. So each song was described using a set of attributes and the artists had to listen to it and score the songs along these attributes. So that's why they called it the Music Genome Project. Um, arguably it's very expensive to build this because you need a human being listen to the song and score these songs. Fortunately for Pandora and unfortunately for musicians, there are a lot of musicians out there who don't have a job. And so they could find enough people to sit and score this. Uh, but that's the other approach. It's more time consuming, more expensive. Um, and one could do that. And finally, there's an approach where you combine the two and Spotify's music recommendations today do that. They combine the collaborative approach. They see what people like you are uh, listening to, but they also have a deep understanding of music. So they also try and figure out what is it about a song that really makes you respond to it. And they combine these two approaches. Very, that's very interesting. And since we're talking about artificial intelligence, um, could you give us a brief history of the development of AI? Sure. So AI, even though the field has made a lot of advancements in recent years, it's not a very old field. You know, in fact, the the origin of this field is just, uh, you know, a few uh, decades back. So in the early 50s, uh, you know, shortly after the World War, you know, Alan Turing, really, uh, who is a mathematician and a scientist, really kickstarted this field by writing uh, a paper in which he posed the question, can machines think? And he posed that question, uh, but really didn't provide many answers. Uh, but he set a framework and he set up this test, uh, which is known as the Turing test. And he said, if a human being is interacting with somebody else on a chat interface, but cannot tell whether they're interacting with another human being or with a computer chatbot, then essentially the chatbot has succeeded at the Turing test and uh, been able to convince this other person that, you know, they might just be interacting with another human being. So that was almost the standard he set. And that led to, you know, early interest in the space. There was a workshop in Dartmouth University where, uh, you know, roughly about a dozen people uh, showed up to try and, uh, you know, figure out what is it uh, what are the kinds of things we should try and do as part of this new field? In fact, the name of the field, artificial intelligence, came up in that workshop. And in fact, there were many other uh, names that were suggested, ranging from automata studies to a bunch of other things that are less interesting. And I think the artificial intelligence title, uh, you know, kind of was this grand title and really set a vision for the field because they said we're trying to mimic human intelligence and that attracted a lot of people because the ambition was so big and for the next four or five decades scientists have been working on trying to create uh, artificial intelligence mostly not successful in fact there is this documented ai winter in the 1970s when you know a lot of industry funding into artificial intelligence died down because, you know, the promise was intelligence, but what we were getting were very simple systems. And mostly these AI systems had disappointed. And, uh, you know, a lot of interest had gone out from the field. But then, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a resurgence in the field, mostly because now we have large, massive data sets from which we can learn. We have amazing amount of computational power in very simple computers in our laptops or in, uh, you know, university labs. And that data combined with the computational power allows us to do more sophisticated 
things today, and that has caused a renaissance in AI uh, more recently. Yeah. In your book, you talk about the predictability resilience paradox. What is it? Yeah. And it really goes down or, or when you boil it down, it comes down to how should we build artificial intelligence? Now, there are two extreme ways to do this. One way is to essentially uh, interview human beings and experts and codify a set of rules. So, for example, if I wanted to create an AI system that can diagnose diseases, one way for me to do that is to interview lots of doctors and ask them questions on how do you decide this is flu and that's pneumonia and that's fever and something else is a cold. And the doctor might give us a set of rules. The doctor might say, first, I look at the temperature, then I evaluate their throat, then I look at, you know, has it been at least a week since they picked this up? And then I consider, uh, you know, bacterial infections and so on. Essentially, they've given us a set of rules. If this person has a fever and this person has body ache, then, you know, I want to see if it has been a week and so on. So that's one way to build an AI system. That system is highly predictable. You know exactly what it will do because you, you gave it a very precise set of rules. But it turns out these systems are not highly resilient. You can't really build amazing intelligence through these set of rules by interviewing experts. As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of knowledge that we cannot even express, like the ability to recognize our mother's face in a photograph. I can't give you the rules for that. A doctor similarly cannot give you the rules for all their diagnostic decisions. There's a lot of what we call tacit knowledge that cannot be easily expressed. And so if you build AI using this approach of codifying rules, which is an approach known as expert systems, you know, they're limited in scope. In the last few years, we've been building AI using other approaches. The most dominant approach we use today is to collect lots of data and use that as a training data set for a machine learning system. And so what that involves in the example of a doctor is we won't ask the doctors any questions. We will just take a database uh, where we have a million plus patients who visited doctor's offices. We have notes on the actual symptoms these people had, and we have the doctor's final diagnosis. And now we ask a machine learning system to reverse engineer what symptoms could have led a doctor to diagnose something as pneumonia or something as, uh, you know, the flu or fever and so on. And that essentially is the other way to build intelligence. This machine learning system is working very well. It helps to create highly resilient systems. You know, we have driverless cars today that are being built using these approaches. The, the flip side of that is we didn't code these rules. We just gave it data and it's learning from that. It's very hard to control what it learns from the data. And so these systems can be highly unpredictable. They might learn certain things that we don't want them to learn, but that's in the data, like the bias against you know, job applicants who are women or the bias against uh, minorities and so on. And so it picks this up and we couldn't predict it a priori, but we have to deal with it going forward. And so that, I think, is the uh, trade-off, the predictability resilience trade-off. So you can either have systems that are highly predictable, but they're not very resilient. Or you have systems that are highly resilient, but they won't be super predictable. Um, and we have to contend with that as both computer scientists building these systems and as end consumers using these systems. You know, we've touched on the, the next question in several guises, and I think it's very important to society today. Do algorithms increase or decrease polarization? Yes. So I, I would say that algorithms can increase and can decrease polarization. And what actual impact they have depends on how we use these systems. And the evidence so far suggests that they are indeed in many ways contributing to polarization. Um, and so, in fact, we did a study, and I've done multiple studies on this subject. One of our, uh, one of our earlier studies was with, uh, you know, music recommendations. We looked at, you know, do these algorithms help diversify our taste in music? And we found that they can, 
and sometimes do diversify our taste in music. And if they diversify our taste in music, if these same kinds of algorithms are recommending news stories to us, they could diversify, in theory, our news consumption as well. But we've looked at the data from news consumption, and there is evidence that there is polarization. And if you look at why such polarization exists, if you look at Facebook as an example, where you know our friends post news stories on Facebook, and then we consume those news stories, and what we consume is determined by newsfeed algorithms that determine which news stories to show us and which ones not to show us. It turns out evidence shows there is polarization there. And it's partly because of algorithms, because these algorithms are meant to show us what we like. And so if we tend to consume only certain kinds of news stories, then it'll show us more of those. And so if we are less left-leaning, it'll show us more left-leaning stories. If we are right-leaning, it'll show us more right-leaning stories. But that's what the algorithm does. But it turns out at least one study shows that the impact of the algorithm on polarization, while positive, is less than the impact on human beings, impact of human beings, meaning which friends do we add on Facebook? You know, people are guilty of defriending or unfriending people who post stuff on Facebook that we disagree with. So if we ourselves do that, then yes, you know, polarization increases, but that's not because of the algorithms, that's us. And so my conclusion through a number of these studies is that algorithms do contribute to polarization. And if you look at the overall effect of algorithms on polarization or on any issue, I've concluded that it comes down to data, algorithms, and people. All three collectively play a role. What kind of data are used to train the algorithm? What kind of logic is being entered into the algorithm by the human programmer? And what choices does a human being uh, make given algorithmic recommendations? Together, the three decide what is the impact of algorithms on polarization, or for that matter, just about any, any algorithmic decision. I think that leads in nicely into the next question. Why do we trust some algorithms but not others? Yeah, so that's really, again, very interesting. You know, uh, many of us uh, are comfortable sitting uh, in an aircraft that primarily uses autopilot, but lots of surveys show we're not comfortable sitting in a driverless car. Similarly, some of us are comfortable trusting our life savings uh, to an algorithm that makes investment decisions. So, for example, companies like Betterment and Wealthfront, which are uh, also known as, uh, you know, they're essentially uh, uh, robo-advisors or software uh, algorithms that make investment decisions for us. And some of us are comfortable making those decisions and others of us are not. And if you look at what drives people's trust in algorithms, there are many relevant factors. It's not just one, but two of the really interesting factors that I've seen are control and transparency. So control really comes down to how much control do we have as users? You know, with a driverless car, you know, if we have, if we have the steering wheel, then we are maybe okay with the driverless car driving for us as long as we can take over. Now, Tesla, for example, has the steering wheel still for the human being, but Google's prototypes for its driverless cars have no steering wheel. And so there is no human control there. Um, and so a lot of evidence does show that if you take away control uh, and take it to its extreme we have where we have no control, then we are less likely to trust it. Now, transparency is another factor. We want to understand a little bit about these software algorithms that are making decisions for us. Now, research shows that a little bit of transparency increases trust, but that too much transparency can actually hurt trust. So that's basically where we get overwhelmed by too much information about the algorithm. So I think most of us want some information on the algorithms that are making decisions for us or about us, um, but perhaps not deep technical details. So these are some of the factors, by no means the only factors. Uh, some other research shows that we're willing to trust algorithms until they fail. And the moment we see their first failure, that's when uh, we become less forgiving of algorithmic failure than of human failure. Uh, 
So, you know, so it again says that trust depends on, you know, having algorithms that are nearly perfect. So a lot of these factors uh, play into our uh, decision to trust an algorithm. You know, one of the things that I really liked about your book is you have any number of really good anecdotes. And I think a good anecdote, just anytime you read about a good anecdote during a day, it just makes the day. So what happened when students complained about their test scores in Clifford Nass's class? Yeah, so that was an interesting one. So Clifford Nass uh, was a professor at Stanford. He's unfortunately no more. Um, He... Uh, had this system wherein multiple teaching assistants or TAs would grade uh, homeworks that students would submit. And it turns out that, you know, some TAs were more lenient and some were more harsh in their grading, even though they had the same grading rubric. And students started to realize that that students in some sections got uh, graded more harshly than others. And students started complaining. And so Clifford Nash, uh, sorry, Clifford Nash, he decided at some point to use an algorithm to adjust the grades based on the harshness of the grader. So what he did was analyze the data on the grading tendency of each TA and use the mathematical formula to adjust the grades of all the students. Essentially, it was a way to normalize all the scores. And his sense was the students would be very happy when they found this out. And what he did was he, in the next version, he had the TAs grade the homeworks. He readjusted all the grades based on his mathematical formula and gave them very detailed information on why they got the grades they got. And he thought, you know, the students would be very happy. It turns out the students were actually very unhappy. After he gave them all this information and said, I adjusted the grades and, you know, and I did everything to make this fair. And the question again was, why was this happening? And uh, one of his uh, research assistants at the time was uh, a PhD student by the name of Rene Kiziljek. And Rene was also puzzled by this. And after Clifford Nass passed away, he decided to test this idea out in an online course on a platform like Coursera. And in these online platforms, you might have thousands of students who submit homeworks, and it's not possible to have that many teaching assistants to grade these homeworks. So oftentimes what's done is you have peer grading. So your homework is graded by another student who uses the grading rubric to uh, grade your homework, and you grade somebody else's and so on. But then... The flip side of this is that you might have people who are very harsh and people who are very lenient. And so he used, again, a mathematical formula to adjust the grades based on the grading tendencies of each of the students. And he then had some students being given their final grade, some others being given their final grade with some very simple information on the factors that resulted in adjustment and some others who were given their revised grades and very detailed information. And what he found is that no transparency had low trust, very high transparency had low trust, and it was the medium or moderate level of transparency that people appreciated. So it again goes to show that people like to understand why algorithms or even simple mathematical formula make certain decisions for them, but they don't want... Uh, you know, all the details or to use a modern phrase, TMI, too much information. That's a problem with human trust in algorithms. You know, we're now entering the portion of your book in which I think you uh, describe what sort of the future that algorithms should play in our society. And one of the things that I wondered as I was reading your book, when I see that I'm at the mercy of this vast uh, um, armada of algorithms. I asked, is there anything I can do as an individual or am I at the mercy of large, powerful tech companies? Yes, a lot of us feel helpless. Uh, you know, we might complain, but we need these algorithms and, uh, you know, we feel that we can't really control them. And I feel that as individuals, the power we have is, you know, our knowledge, our dollars and our votes. And there are indeed some concrete steps we can follow. 
For example, you know, step number one, you know, be aware of when an algorithm is making a decision for you or about you. Uh, you know, second, you know, we need to understand how this might affect the decision being made. Uh, in fact, you know, my book uh, will help readers with that because I try and, uh, you know, peel the layers and help us understand how algorithms are affecting our decisions. Next, we need to decide whether this is acceptable to us as individuals or as a member of society. And if this is not acceptable, then we need to demand changes or walk away from the algorithms that have a problem. So, for example, you mentioned earlier, you know, the impact of algorithms on, let's say, polarization. Or similarly, there's been questions about Facebook's algorithms and its impact on fake or false news being circulated. And we could apply these principles uh, in that setting as well. So first of all, when we consume a news story on Facebook, we should realize that Facebook's algorithm has decided which of thousands of news stories and posts to show you. And then, you know, recall what you what I kind of describe in my book, which is that Facebook's algorithms choose the news stories uh, from the ones posted by your friends and prioritize them based on which friends uh, you have engaged with the most on Facebook. And so if you want a breadth of perspectives, then don't unfriend or stop engaging with people you disagree with. And if you engage with those people, then Facebook will continue to show you perspectives that are different from yours. Even if you don't agree, but you want the wealth or the breadth of perspectives, then we need to actually engage with people who have different viewpoints. Uh, similarly, if we find false information posted by someone on Facebook, by a friend, you know, today with just two clicks, you can notify Facebook's algorithms that this information is false. Uh, similarly, uh, we can also inform our friends that this information is false and they should actually uh, delete their post. And Facebook algorithms can use this kind of information uh, to stop circulating false stories. And finally, I think we should demand transparency from Facebook on why certain posts are shown, why some aren't, what uh, factors are being used in its algorithms and so on. And if we are unhappy with the transparency being offered or with the way we're being treated, then, uh, you know, we should decide to walk uh, away from these systems. And lastly, I think we should vote for politicians who will support some basic rights for all of us, like being informed when algorithms make decisions for us, a simple way of understanding those decisions and so on. Well, one of the things that you do at the end of the book is you discuss the idea of an algorithmic bill of rights. And why do you think society needs an algorithmic bill of rights? What will it embody and whom will it protect? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the big um, recommendations I feel I have in this book is this notion of an algorithmic bill of rights. And the algorithmic bill of rights... I propose that mainly because today we are at the, at the mercy of these powerful technology companies that are having so much impact on us. You know, recently we've had debates and conversations about whether elections are being influenced by these uh, uh, technologies and the algorithms. Uh, we talked about, you know, their use in courts uh, in the U.S. for sentencing decisions, for recruiting decisions. Our loan applications are approved uh, the loan, the mortgage rates are determined by algorithms. So given the kind of impact they have on our society, we need certain checks and balances. And the analogy that I draw in my book is that when the U.S. Constitution was set up, the fear that some people had was that the U.S. government would be, the federal government would be extremely powerful under the new setup and that it could violate citizens' rights, and that we might be switching from one form of tyranny, which was at that time the British Empire, to another form of tyranny. So to try and provide some checks and balances, the founding fathers essentially created a Bill of Rights within the U.S. Constitution to support uh, essentially uh, citizens and to uh, ensure that uh, they're protected from a powerful government. I think today the power lies in many ways with these technology companies that are running our lives. And I think we similarly need some checks and balances to protect ourselves. I think the technology companies need to be part of that conversation. And I think the regulators also need to be part of that conversation. Um, 
What are some of your specific recommendations for an algorithmic bill of rights? You had four pillars in your book, and I think they're all worth discussing. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about them. Um, So, in fact, these pillars were inspired by some work that's already going on by a number of bodies. So, for example, the uh, ACM or the Association of Computing Machinery comes up with a set of recommendations uh, to manage algorithms' impacts on society. So uh, I have analyzed all those and distilled them and come up with my four main pillars for uh, my algorithmic bill of rights. I think the first pillar that I propose is that for users who use algorithms or who's, who are impacted by decisions made by algorithms. So for example, I apply for a loan and an algorithm decides whether I get it or not. We should have a right uh, to a description of the data that is used to train these algorithms. Uh, you know, the data, so that would mean we're informed how was the data collected we would know whether the data was collected from sources that we think should not be used to make decisions about us. So first, we should know what data was used. Secondly, uh, we should be given an explanation regarding the procedures used by the algorithms. So it should be expressed in terms that are simple enough for an average person to understand. So again, when I say we need explanations, that is more challenging than it might appear. I mentioned how we've switched or we are actively switching from algorithms that were coded using rules that a programmer adds into the system to an AI-based system. Today, some of the, the best performing algorithms are often the most opaque. Even their programmers cannot explain how they work because all the programmers are doing is providing the training data and helping the algorithm learn from it. And so they cannot explain why a certain loan application was rejected or a job application was rejected. So what I'm arguing for is that technology companies need to take our right to explanation seriously and think about algorithm design, keeping explanation for users in mind. The third thing that I mentioned is that users should be provide some level of control on the way the algorithms work. So there should be some way for us to be able to uh, communicate with the algorithm and influence its decisions. That may mean sometimes having the absolute final decision. So, for example, you know, uh, a driverless car where there's a steering wheel. And sometimes that might mean at least the ability to inform the algorithm that, you know, something is going wrong. So, for example, if Facebook on Facebook's platform, fake news stories are being circulated. We need a mechanism to inform the algorithm that we believe this news story is fake. We couldn't do that in 2016, but because of the fake news controversy from 2016, we can do that today. This should be built into all systems in the future so that there is a way for users to communicate with the algorithm. Lastly, I mentioned this as a as one of the pillars in the Bill of Rights, and it's really not a right, and it's a responsibility, that users have a responsibility to be aware of the unanticipated consequences of automated decision-making. I believe that until we take this matter seriously and we recognize that we as users have a big role to play here, we cannot solve this. And to do that, we should uh, really take our responsibilities seriously. Just like a democracy works only when its citizens are engaged, You know, I think this works only when uh, algorithm users are engaged. And so that's why I've included that as a pillar in my Bill of Rights to emphasize how important these responsibilities are as well. Um, Karthik, I enjoyed your book immensely, and um, I've enjoyed this interview. And I also wonder a couple of things that I always ask uh, um, the people who are being interviewed at the end of the interview. Do you have any ongoing projects that might interest the audience? Yeah, I have a number of projects that I think would be of interest. One of those projects right now focuses on trust in algorithms. And I'm trying to study what are the factors that drive trust. And I'm particularly interested in this idea of transparency. And we've talked a little bit about how transparency drives trust. But I think we're only now starting to understand it at a very superficial or surface level. And in one of our studies, we are trying to dig into it a little deeper and trying to understand what is the right level of transparency that's needed. Does it really drive trust for 
experts in the same way as it might for end users. So how are experts different? You know, for example, are doctors willing to trust an algorithm that will give them diagnostic suggestions? And if so, does transparency impact that at all? So we're actually running a series of experiments. Some of them are in field settings like in hospitals where we uh, ask doctors to use a diagnostic system and we see whether they're willing to follow the recommendations of that diagnostic system against another peer group which is not given the recommendations and when we see how they behave. And then in other settings, we are testing this out with you know, lay users and looking at how lay users might respond to algorithms differently relative to experts. So that's one set of projects. Another set of projects uh, relates to, uh, you know, how do we do, how do we create algorithms that are more transparent? And so this is around the mathematical and technical challenges of creating high performing algorithms that can explain themselves. So we are doing some work on some of those techniques. Uh, and related to that, we also have some research projects that are focused on how do you do causal analysis using data and using machine learning methods. And you know, a lot of these machine learning methods are doing a curve fitting at some level. They're looking at patterns in the data, but they're not able to say whether the patterns are causal in nature or some simple correlations. And so we're trying to figure out you know, how do you do causal analysis using machine learning approaches? So we have a number of projects in these areas. Um, and I think that this is ultimately going to be an important area for scientists in terms of work that can have a huge impact on society. It's going to be an important area for regulators in terms of setting policies that will have a huge impact on society and for end users uh, because it impacts them in such important ways. Fascinating. Um, Karthik, how can our audience get in touch with you? Well, so there's many ways uh, in which uh, to get in touch with me. Uh, so first is that uh, we can connect on LinkedIn. Um, and so that's an easy way to connect and to exchange uh, messages. We can also connect on Twitter. On Twitter, my uh, Twitter handle is khosanagar. That's K-H-O-S-A-N-A-G-A-R. Uh, and finally, my... Uh, Email address is karthikh at wharton.upen.edu, K-A-R-T-I-K-H at wharton.upen.edu. All of these uh, are ways in which uh, we can connect. Karthik, thank you very much. Take Thanks care. very much for having me, Jim. Take care.